Hello and welcome to Beyond the Noise, a source news podcast with me, David Jameson, where I get beyond the headlines and look at issues in the news in more depth. Um, this week we'll be discussing um, the situation with energy, the environment and a so-called just transition in Scotland. Scotland's a country that's become um, a bit of a litmus test for the, the concept of a transition to a decarbonised economy. Of course, Scotland is home to a uh, huge oil industry in the North Sea, to uh, significant uh, and developing renewables and uh, carbon energy, uh, particularly around the Fife area, um, a country which is often referred to as the Saudi Arabia of renewables by politicians and experts. Um, but the birth of that renewables industry has been marked with very acute controversies. For example, with the offshoring of renewables jobs in the uh, BIFAB scandal um, over the, the Scottish government's green investment portfolio, which seeks to sell Scotland's national assets to the international highest bidder. Uh, further controversies around Ineos, Moss Moran, Grangemouth, the infrastructure of carbon industry, um, which is a major part of, of Scotland's economy. I'm joined to discuss all these things uh, by activists with Scott E3, um, which is a, a group of rank-and-file trade unionists um, in various industries connected to energy um, uh, and brings trade unionists together with environmental activists. Uh, the, the, the E3 stands for Employment, Energy and Environment, um, and so, of course, this concept of a just transition, um, which is both, uh, you know, a salvation for the environment, but which would hopefully also uh, improve the lot of workers uh, and the economy at large, uh, is, of is, of course, a major uh, source of its work. Um, so I'm joined by Pete Cannell uh, and Willie Black, who are both uh, activists in this group. Thanks very much for, for joining me. Thanks very much, David. Um, can I just ask Pete, first of all, um, uh, why you set up Scotty 3 and um, how you view the, the, the current state of these debates in, in, in Scotland? Um, I mean, is, is the just transition something which is actually happening uh, or does it still just exist at the level of political rhetoric? Yeah, to be quite straight about it, I think it does still just exist at the level of political rhetoric. When we set the group up three years ago, we thought there was a real space for a campaign that took the ideas of climate jobs and of transition that was socially just, that actually was concerned with uh, not repeating the things that had happened during, for example, the end of the coal industry, which devastated whole communities. Uh, we thought, thought that there was space for a campaign that was active in that area, popularizing the ideas among uh, rank and file trade unionists in working class communities and so on. I think there's been a little bit of progress with that. We, at, the, kind of, at the top level, the words just transition are used much more than they were three years ago. The Scottish Government reversed them all the time. The STUC and Friends of the Earth Scotland have done some really good work and in embedding those in kind of high level policy. But 
the implications of them in practice are really hard to find. In fact, there are less people working in uh, sustainable jobs in Scotland now than there were five years ago. The numbers have declined in the period when it, objectively they should have been increasing. And that, I think that what you raise there in terms of um, the fear of deindustrialization, um, you know, is presumably something that, the, that those projecting a rhetoric of a just transition have tried to avoid because the association uh, in the minds of many people living in communities across Scotland with wholesale industrial change. Um, you know, the last time that happened on a major basis, it was the, the loss of car jobs, of coal mining jobs, of steel jobs. Um, Willie, um, you know, it, it, are, are, are we looking at um, in this transition to, from, from uh, carbon to a decarbonized economy? Is the pattern likely to look like uh, BIFAB? Because there are some people, for example, some trade unionists, who are pointing at BIFAB uh, and saying this is the future. When people talk about a decarbonised economy, they're talking about deindustrialization. No, I, I don't believe that deindustrialization is is the is the way forward. It's a question of um, utilising previously. Um, industrial zones, brownfields, etc., to create a new industry. And if you think about the renewables, it, why was it not it more possible for those contracts that are only 10 miles away from Bifab within the Pentland, uh, the Pentland Firth, the Murray Firth, and the, the others, why was it not possible for the jackets that hold the wind turbines not to be built in Scotland. If you take it from a, a, a carbon neutral position, why would you give it the contract away across the, the rest of the world and expect them to then ship it back? So like thousands of miles shipping it back from Indonesia or somewhere else. And instead of um, giving the contract to local companies or, or a company that had actually been taken over by the Scottish government, because the government um, invested money in BIFAB. The failure of BIFAB, or the BIFAB uh, industrial action, the closure down of the workers' occupation of that yard, effectively handed the control or the future of that BIFAB to, to, to others other than the workers. The workers could have been the UCS of um, the 20th, uh, 21st century. It could have had a huge labour support. It could have been um, fired up the whole argument and made it much more practical if the workers had occupied and continued to be supported by the rest of the industry, uh, labour movement, sorry, uh, and workers everywhere across the world. We could have had a huge argument about what the practical steps, and instead the workers were scattered to the four winds and the closure of that yard. So one of the problems was when workers fight back, don't close it down. Don't close these workers' ability to fight back and to control their own destiny. Those workers there, and I was on the march to the, to the parliament, and I heard the convener talking about nationalising the yard. Effectively, that, that's what could have happened. The BIFAB yard 
could still be used, even though these contracts were, are possibly gone now, as Pete says, it doesn't mean to say that the other work that's required in a just transition, so for instance, the whole of Fife, has to be refitted, insulated in the houses, solar panels, the removal of gas boilers, that could actually be housed inside the yard. The yard could be the, the base in which all that work spreads out over the next five, five years, so that Fife becomes to be the place in which is in, in, in the lead. It seems to me that there is many practical things if you're talking about how to um, bottom it down. What, would it, what does it matter? That's what matters is that pe people, and we're coming up with some of those ideas, but not exclusively, to, to say that yards like Bifab, like Grangemouth, um, like um, other, other places, um, could in fact be the solution to how the renewables could accelerate and could be um, reduce our carbon footprint. And, and these are the type of things that are required now. Coupled with, of course, uh, this, the government, the Scottish government, doing something practical, like the creation of the investment bank. Because people will say, where's the money coming from? Well, at the borrowing capacity of a government, uh, an investment bank, a national energy uh, company could be formed that would hold all those ideas and overarching um, program that would allow us to, to move ahead. We, we uh, refitting housing, insulating all houses, taking out uh, gas, gas boilers and refitting them with, with other type of heating systems that are um, beneficial to the environment. These are the solar panels, all those kind of things. There is, there's, a, there's a need for huge amounts of work programs that could, that could be brought in. And that's really where, where we are. So we're not talking about deindustrialization. We're talking about workers who have got skills being trained in new parts of, of the economy so that we can push really ahead and, 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 and protect jobs. Um, because the reality is, in the next 10 years, millions of workers across the world are going to be their jobs are going to be done away with uh, if we um if we need to um, protect the environment i think that is interesting you're saying about um how expansive the infrastructure that we need and the training that we need is if, if we're going to make this idea of a new renewables economy real i mean it, um someone a, a trade union activist said to me recently why isn't there a, a, a technical college or a technical university in Fife the, whose job is to train people in new renewables technology, new renewables industry? I mean, Pete, it's part of the problem here that um, we, we've, we, we're not getting a sense of the big picture, you know, of a big national industrial strategy that doesn't, you know, obviously does involve skilled jobs, um, you know, at specific um, points of industrial development but this is also about education it's also about wider infrastructure it's also presumably about you know transport if we're talking about developing renewables in the highlands and islands and, and parts of the country which are still relatively inaccessible you know do we need a sense of a big picture here yeah absolutely i mean we do need a big picture 
seriously coordinated industrial strategy. What we have instead is, and it's kind of remarkable in the middle of uh, a pandemic, which has shone a kind of harsh light on the, 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 the way in which rely on, reliance on kind of neoliberal measures and on the market actually doesn't meet needs in any rational and serious way. Uh, so we, 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 need, we, we need to think about what kind of skills and, and education we need. There's a need for some retraining. I mean, the, the skills that ex currently existing workers have don't, don't always fit perfectly, but there hasn't been any expansion of that kind in the, in the college sector in Scotland. Quite the contrary, actually. Engineering courses have been cut. There's very, very little provision in, in Scotland at the moment of that sort. So we need to think about that, but we need to, it's no good simply doing that. You need to actually then be thinking about where's the investment going? What kind of things are people gonna do? And I think that's been the, one of the key things we've been arguing about, about just transition, is that just transition isn't some kind of woolly concept. It's made up of lots of serious practical steps that are actually necessary to do. And they involve human labor, they involve actual activity to do those kinds of things differently. We need to set up different kinds of energy distribution grids. We have the, all of those, I, the, the knowledge exists for that. We could set up smart grids now if we had the political will to do it. And you could combine the best of large scale with small scale local community based energy production as well. But none of that is happening. And on the contrary, what the Scottish government, as you refer, mentioned, is doing is putting that out to the, the highest bidder. And in that sense, I think we need to look, at, look really hard at that industry because the, in, the energy industry that will be bidding for those contracts is one that's dominated by the, the big seven oil companies. Some of them like Total and, and um, Exxon have stayed entirely in hydrocarbons. Most of them are branching out into renewables as well. Now, that's often portrayed as a good thing, but when you look at the balance, they're both expanding their renewable production and also expanding their exploitation of fossil fuels. So the same firms that are talking, are talking a good story about renewables are looking at exploiting the Arctic, at new, new bits of Africa, new bits of South America and so on. If, any, if that happens, I mean, it is an ex existential threat to, to human life that, that we're talking about, not, uh, not any, anything less than that. And so uh, we have to get away from this idea that simply appealing to a market that's rigged in favor of the big, powerful oil corporations will actually be any kind of solution. There, are, there, there will be some kind of transition out of that but it will be a deeply unjust one. And it's one that is highly unlikely not to uh, meet any of the targets that required to meet anything like 1.5 or two degrees rise in, in global temperature. So you know, there'll be a transition in the favor of those that, are, those that are clinging on to all of the infrastructure and apparatus and power relationships that were established throughout the 20th century by what, for nearly 100 years has been the biggest and most important commodity on, on earth, which was oil. On that point, I think this is interesting. 
if I can ask Willie about, um, I mean, my, my impression about if it is an unjust transition, if that is ultimately what happens, if we are looking at job losses and so on, and in a sense, the, the, the you know, big oil and, and, and the big carbon energy uh, uh, exploiters um, who have benefited for so long from the current structure of the energy market, if they ultimately want to push the costs of the transition onto working class people, there's a real danger, is there not, that working class people will reject that shift. As for example, in um, France, the Yellow Vest movement, though there was a lot more going on there, but part of what instigated the movement was uh, French motorists were told that they would pay for a transition in, uh, in terms of fuel pollution uh, with, a, with a new tax. And the, the consequence was that people uh, resisted that, that measure. I mean, is there any kind of transition even possible if working class people refuse to go along with it, really? I think, I think there is a difficulty, and I, I think that people need to be um, pe um, expressed a, a view that in, in a recent survey on North Sea oil workers, most of them hadn't heard, uh, and they were the ones who, who responded to the survey, um, said that they hadn't heard of a just transition. So we've got a huge job to be done in terms of winning people. But also, you're right, I mean, if working class people are made to pay, then they will, they will fight back against that. They will reject that. Um, we had that situation when um, Edinburgh, for instance, um, tried to bring in a congestion charge. But the, the only problem is, unless you have a transport system, uh, and, and when you see that, uh, uh, you know, the, the only company in, in Scotland that can make electric uh, buses uh, begins to be uh, closed down uh, and, and sacks and, and makes workers redundant rather than expands, expands it, the, the company in Falkirk. The problem then you've got is that you're, you're, not, you're not matching the reality. It's, it, we've got a problem, whether we like it or not, 10 years is what we've got to resolve the fundamentals or the problem of carbon uh, and carbon emissions. Yes, Scotland has a role to play. The rest of the world has a role to play. But it, it would be strange, for instance, if we were to say, oh, by the way, we're going to build an asbestos factory in Grangemouth. To be honest, nobody in the right mind would build an asbestos factory. It is, it is a part of an industry that is redundant, that is no longer um, be able to, to be sustained. Nobody would accept that because we know the health risks of an asbestos factory. But if the GMB had members in that factory or in that workplace, they would in fact be defending that. They would be in fact defending the continuation of that asbestos factory. What we've got in the, the trade union movement is a, a bit like dead planet trade unionism. We have to win people. The trade union movement has to shift dramatically to, the, to, to a green um, strategy for it to work and, 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 and build the necessary capacity so that workers will in fact side with the environmentalists. That's the, our yeah, Scotty 3's function is to bring environmentalists 
and trade unions together to give it strength. So I think there is a, a, a huge problem um, of acceptance, but I think I'm optimistic. I think that the, the, the reality is that people will, will be thrown out their jobs anyway by the, by the system as it tries to piecemeal towards a climate um, uh, solution. But we need to have control. Working class people need to have a control or, or the future. And that's why we, we, we would do that. I mean, if you look at something like combined heat and power, why is not every city in, in Scotland and every town in Scotland not linked up uh, where combined heat and power away from uh, the type of gas and fossil fuel uh, heating systems that, that, that we have? And that could be a massive growth area. And workers would see that as being somewhere that would, they could protect their living standards and their families' uh, right to, 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 to a future. So there's big issues. I mean, I remember, and I'll finish on this, I remember when um, people arrived at everybody's door um, in boiler suits to fix your gas when North Sea gas was, was uh, created. Every, every house in the country that had gas had to be fixed. Who organized that? How did that happen? That, that is the scale that we are talking about um, uh, that's required. And that would generate um, uh, wages and conditions that were compatible with hopefully the best terms and conditions at the present moment. And unless we control it, we'll go the situation of the miners where the villages are decimated, unemployment, drugs, all the rest. And we can't have a second uh, coal uh, mines situation where everything was just closed down and everybody was left to their own devices. And unless the government and the trade unions fight for the right strategy and, and, and implement it on a grand scale, and it is a grand scale, we're talking about thousands, millions of new jobs and training. When you've got 16 to 25 year olds thrown on the scrap heap, what is the solution? The solution is just to leave them there? No, you have to give them a future. And within these new industries and new direction, the green direction, uh, we can see that people could get uh, decent living standards, etc. So, yeah. If I can just ask Pete then, because I, because I do think, and either of you can jump in, I do think that this is a key debate because I had, it must have been two years ago, I had this argument uh, on one of these podcasts with Gary Smith uh, of GMB Scotland. Um, and, you know, his argument was this just transition is a thing that is not happening. Um, and we're talking about, you know, people losing their jobs uh, for a green transition, uh, which uh, is essentially similar to past forms of deindustrialization uh, and so forth. My argument to him was that, you know, that that may be the current picture, but you, we cannot deny the reality of climate change. I felt like he didn't have an answer to that question, but I also felt I didn't have an answer to his questions about jobs, um, about, you know, here's the rhetoric of just transition, where's the follow through? I mean, a, a couple of years later, one could argue um, 
Gary Smith's arguments um, ring more true for the mess at Bifab, um, for the general lack of, of um, emergence of these jobs. Is there not a real danger now of a kind of vicious cycle where government action, the lack of a national strategy, the lack of industrial strategy, um, that simply reinforces uh, fear among groups of workers that they are uh, that they're losing their jobs and also ultimately for <laughs> for a version of this just transition which is environmentally unsound because these um, you know for example we've got wind turbines that are being produced halfway around the world and then floated here on huge barges you know is is the fundamental problem here what I'm asking not so much trade union sectionalism as uh, government in action, basically. Yeah, I mean, Gary, part of what Gary has said over the last few years is absolutely right. He's right to condemn, I think, the, the hypocrisy of people who talk about just transition but don't do anything to make it, make it happen. But, but the other half, I think, is seriously wrong. I mean, because the alternative is not either this kind of airy-fairy just transition or the status quo. The status quo is not on offer to Gary Smith's members. I mean, you can see that in a whole range of different ways. You can see it in the redundancies at, uh, um, at Petro Ineos that were announced this week. You can see it in the redundancies that have been announced at Mos, Mos Morin. You can see it in the 9,000 people who have lost their jobs uh, on the North Sea this year. Um, yes, that's partly about the, uh, the, you know, the current recession as, as part of the pandemic. But what that's also triggered is part of a much, much longer and more deeply rooted process in which the oil and gas industry is in, is in its death throes but its death throes could easily last another 20, 30, 40 years, in which time they keep on spewing out far more carbon than, than is possible within the limits that, that are acceptable. And what's happening in that industry is that there are, the smaller operators are, are going to the wall. You look at the United States, for example, uh, there's the loss of small energy companies that are involved in the, the kind of shale gas and shale oil that has propelled the United States to being the top oil producer in the world again for the last uh, little while. They're going to the wall, 134 billion uh, loss in companies this year. Much of that has been snapped up by the big, the big companies. So there's a centralization going on, but there's also a kind of race to the bottom. There's, there's agreements about what the price for oil should be. It looks like it's going to turn out something like $35, $40 a barrel. Uh, and that's going to be an agreement that they want to try and make stick for quite a long time. At that price, most of the North Sea is completely uneconomic. So on the one hand, you have you know, uh, Gary Smith and the GMB and, and Unite as well, continue to support what is the Scottish government and the Westminster government's position of maximum economic recovery from the North Sea. Um, but that maximum recovery will, will be confined to the kind of the only a fraction of the possible sites because most of the difficult sites are much more expensive to, to extract oil from. So there will be more jobs losses, whatever happens. 
And so in that situation, uh, surely what we need to do is put the weight and the power and the organization of uh, both those, those who work on the North Sea and those who work in the wider energy industry, but of the labor movement more generally, right behind pushing that, that transition in a way that is, is, is seriously just. And if we do that, we're talking about, we're not talking about less jobs. I mean, there has been really serious work that's done, was done originally by the, um, the Million Climate Jobs campaign, uh, really quite a long time ago now, uh, back at nearly a decade ago, but recently reproduced by the Green European Foundation, who've done a much more sophisticated job on, on what it means in terms of employment to make a, a sustainable economic transition. And across the board, you're talking about more jobs. You're talking about more jobs in, in, in all kinds of areas. And I think the argument we've made, and, and I mean, to a certain extent, we were making it inspired by some of the people talking about just transition in the States, that, that climate jobs isn't just about jobs that kind of build jackets and build wind turbines and install uh, home insulation. It's also about other kinds of jobs which sustain human life and, and, and that's got a particular resonance now in the midst of a pandemic when we've seen how important those basic care jobs, health worker jobs and so on. These are jobs that don't, don't wreck the planet but they're really important to the kind of high quality lifestyles that people should expect and deserve and so you know we're talking about a, a transition that would involve an intensification of opportunities for the existing workforce. And for me, in a way, I mean, we're looking about the future, a really exciting look about different kinds of job opportunities for people who are currently at school, at college and so on, instead of actually stacking them up as kind of uh, in, in halls of residence and using them as uh, uh, fodder for the, um, for the big contracts they've made over accommodation and things like that. We ought to be really, really, really talking about not just fundamentals of the technical education you need for trust transition, but actually what kind of education we need and the imagination and creativity we need to live our lives in a different way, which is actually part of what the transition will, will entail. And, and for me, that, that involves hope for the future, for not just for those currently employed in the industry, but for their kids and for the for, for young people as well. One final question, which is just that, I mean, obviously Scotland was supposed to be hosting COP26 uh, this year, uh, around about now, if I recall, it's been a while since uh, I sort of forgot all about it after the pandemic, but the pandemic meant, of course, that people couldn't travel around the world um, to join that uh, conference. Um, but, you know, we've seen in recent weeks China make new commitments uh, to reducing emissions. Uh, Biden has obviously won the US election and he has also said that he will reintegrate the United States into global efforts to reduce carbon emissions. Um, so I suppose that um, the, the conference this time next year has a new, um, a new focus of perhaps of global events on these questions. What are the challenges for environmentalists in Scotland uh, in terms of, you know, how, how should we greet that conference? Are we protesting it? Are we, uh, uh, are we trying to get involved in a, uh, at what kind of level, basically? I mean, what, what, what do we need to push at that conference? 
Yeah, I think there, there are mixed views about this. Um, I mean, I think we have to look pretty critically at, you know, some of Biden's promises because, you know, it's, they look a bit like the kinds of things the Scottish government has said. It's better that people are making positive noises about climate action than that they're making negative ones. But for, for me, I think it's really important that we dig underneath the surface to see, to always ask the question, what's actually changing here? And I mean, there's been some brilliant work. I don't know if you've come across a guy called Richard Smith who's been writing extensively about China. I mean, um, and the nature of the Chinese economy. It's true that the, you know, the fact that the, the, that very good film by, uh, and book by um, Naomi Klein ends with a vision of, you know, Chinese solar panels as far as the eye can see, right? And the, and the, and the kind of implicit promise that, that that's our salvation. And it's true, China's producing solar panels at, at an enormous rate. The only thing is that they're also installing new coal-fired power stations at an enormous rate as well. And currently their plans, uh, and they're, they're cur the current announcement hasn't altered those plans, is to keep on installing that coal-fired capacity right through to about 2040. And that's just too late. I mean, in a way, China shows the possibility of what can be done at scale, but it also shows the, the depth of the problems that we have. So for me, what we need to be doing the number one most important thing we need to use around COP26, I think, is to take the message about um, climate action out to much wider layers of Scottish society, because it's possible that COP26 could look just like a, some kind of annoying media jamboree that's going on in Glasgow for, for two or three weeks, while you know, the, the, the rich and the powerful kind of have special buses laid on, they close off parts of the city so they can move around easily while you know, other folk in Glasgow kind of have to put up with that. And the rest of, this, the, rest of the country looks on in kind of half bemusement and thinking, yeah, this is just another of these kind of international jamborees. I think we have to take the message of that out uh, you know, into Glasgow, but also into every working class community in Scotland and say, we should be saying what a worker led just transition looks like, what community-led just transition looks like, and, and why, you know, it's our interests that are paramount in this, not that, and that we don't trust these people, that, and that we start to build the power that means that we stop having to trust, relying on them, but we're either forcing them to, doing, to do things or asking them to stand aside and let people who can do things take over. You know, I mean, it's, uh, I think it's just, it's as harsh as that. And, and so it presents us with both a challenge and an opportunity, I think, COP26. There's some really interesting events being held, held just now UK-wide to kind of fill the space that would have been occupied by COP26. And I think we've got to use that extra year we've got to really build that grassroots campaign in Scotland. I think, you're, I think um, Pete is absolutely right. We need to build now. We need to um, have an attitude in Scotland that we will be the focus, like Paris was, like uh, Tokyo. These are the opportunities for us to get the message out. And with Biden coming, if he, if he takes up uh, Boris Johnston's offer to come to Glasgow, can you imagine that the focus in, in the world would be here 
The question then is, what is the voice that's heard here? And I think the global south in communities and in trade unions and in different forums in Scotland from now to next November, uh, we need to be offering solidarity and support to people on the Pacific Islands, the people in Asia, uh, India and other parts to be able to come here to have a huge voice and whether that's inside the COP or external to the COP or a combination of both, we need to have played our part in playing, uh, uh, being able to offer uh, people that are facing the direct consequences of global uh, warming right now. And we need to echo their, or, or give voice uh, to them and give them solidarity and support. So we should be starting to collect money. We should have offers for people to, to be, uh, be given accommodation, et cetera, et cetera. So that in the year we've got, we need to build from now. There is uh, the ground up coalition, the coalition that's, um, that Pete's talking about that's having a whole series of meetings uh, starting from today. Um, but what we also need to do is to, to reach out uh, across the world and say, if you come to Glasgow, if you come to Scotland, we will, we will be here in solidarity with you. But the other thing is, we have to fight everywhere to, to, to say, what are we doing in a practical way? What is Scotland doing that can be an inspiration to the world? What can Glasgow, Edinburgh, and the rest of Scotland offer the world as, a, as part of the solution? and no just a uh, Miranda uh, up to the COP26 uh, and, and, and shout and sloganise. We need to be doing practical things in every community and trade unions have got a, an absolute role to play in that. And we'll be, we'll be playing our, our role in that and hopefully that'll, that'll expand and it'll be a serious opposition uh, outside the COP26. Um, rather than just leave it to the NGOs and other organisations inside who have maybe be invited to, to meet with Biden. Pete's right. It's a very, very um, uh, small um, answer, uh, but it's an opportunity and we should seize it um, and see where it goes. Oh, okay. Um, Pete and Willie, thanks very much for speaking to me on this. Thank you, David. And listeners can find more about all these debates at source.scot, where we'll have extensive coverage of ecological issues, the energy economy, uh, and the politics of climate change in the run-up to that conference next year.